Hi everyone, Dr. Celine Gounder here. I'm the host of In Sickness and In Health. We really appreciate all our loyal listeners, and I'm hoping you can help us grow this community even more. If you like our podcast, text a friend about it right now. The bigger we can grow this community, the more episodes we can do, and the more ambitious our show can be. Thanks for listening. Now, here's the show. It was a Halloween, and um, most of my coworkers had headed home to either, you know, go trick-or-treating with their kids or see the little cute kids come from around their neighborhood for trick-or-treating. We're going to start this episode with Tony Gomez. It was pretty empty in the office, and we heard some gunfire. I was up on the ninth floor, went to the window, looked out to see if I might see something, call in, be helpful, and my blinds rattled. And I immediately knew that some bullet had come near me. And, um, yeah, I realized I'd been shot at. And when I came to work the next day, I asked my coworker to pull up the blinds um, at where I would have been standing. I could see that a bullet had gone just above me and, and just below me. So I called the police, ended up uh, talking with them. I learned that it's not uncommon in, on New Year's Eve and Halloween and, and other situations for people to just go out and randomly shoot off firearms um, in celebration or whatever. I asked him, I said, are you going to come like dig the, the, the bullets out, you know, to run ballistics? And he goes, no, we got enough casings. We don't need to do that. So, you know, I work with a, a bullet lodged in my floor that I think about every day, my close call. And then there's this whole trafficking system, firearms being stolen out of homes where firearms aren't safely stored is sadly too common. On this episode of In Sickness and In Health, we're going to talk about how safe gun storage can help limit access to guns by high-risk users like minors, thieves, and people at risk of suicide. We'll speak with folks from the public health world and folks from the gun world about how they're working together to prevent suicides and accidental deaths, which make up over 60% of gun-related deaths in the U.S. each year. Tony Gomez, the man you heard at the top of the show, is in charge of violence and injury prevention for Seattle, King County, and Washington State. Seattle's mayor and city council are trying to address gun violence through two new laws. One of them is a safe storage bill. Seattle's responsible storage law requires gun owners to keep their guns locked in a container when they're not carrying them. The other law toughens penalties for failing to report a lost or stolen firearm. The worst case scenario is civil penalty up to $10,000 if a minor at-risk person or prohibited person gains access and kills or injures another or uses it in a crime. Tony thinks these new measures will help prevent guns from entering the black market and being illegally trafficked. It's an underreporting, but we know that there's about three and a half to four and a half million dollars worth of firearms um, stolen each year in our state. But most importantly, he says, safe gun storage is the most effective way to prevent kids and young people from getting hurt by guns. When I was a college student, and I was working in um, the Denver, Colorado area. The owner of the company I worked for, we did um, lifeguarding and swim lessons and swim team management. He and the rest of his coworkers really liked their boss and got to know him and his family pretty well. And uh, one day we, we got the call that the owner's um, four-year-old son had 
shot himself in the chest. Gun ownership in Colorado, where lots of people hunt and shoot for sport, is really common. So Tony and his co-workers weren't all that surprised there was a gun in the home. As the storage emerged publicly, um, it was learned that uh, the firearm was, you know, up in a, in a closet somewhere, and the bullets were in that same room, but separate. And the little boy had seen his dad um, load the starting pistol for swim meets. He was a starter at many of the swim meets in the area, so the little boy knew how to load the little the starter pistol. Um, and so we stumbled upon the, the 22 handgun and put the bullets together um, and shot himself in the chest. It was um, just so, so devastating. So I've heard a remarkable number of stories of children and some now adults in that moment of despondency, in that moment of crisis, going to look for the firearm they knew that was within the household and it either being in a lockbox or being totally out of the house. And they're here today to, you know, to tell their story of the value of safe storage and being aware of those suicide risk uh, factors. So those are the kind of positive um, sorts of things that um, keep us empowered, inspired to continue to, to, to do good work in this area. In the past, Tony has worked with various initiatives that encourage safe storage among gun owners. He says they had some success, but hopes Seattle's new laws will help make safety the standard across the board once and for all. Restaurants and Healthcare providers are supposed to report foodborne illness to us. Um, swimming pools are supposed to report drownings and near drownings. Um, firearm owners need to be reporting to law enforcement when their firearms are stolen because the, the, the law enforcement community, you know, has um, kind of a good tact of don't let your firearm become a crime gun, lock it up. They are concerned about unsafely stored firearms um, getting in the hands of criminals that then they're going to have to deal with out in the community in, in whatever situation would present. But what exactly do we mean when we say safe storage? Tony explains the best practices that public health experts and gun owners have come up with. The least safe storage method is an unlocked firearm. So that means it's um, available, it's out, it's not in a, in a safe storage device. And then it also includes that firearm being loaded. There are, are bullets in the firearm and it's um, therefore uh, a very dangerous uh, weapon because it does have uh, the two components, the easy access as well as the ammunition within it. An intermediate storage practice would be... The firearms that are locked up that have ammunition in them. This part surprised me. Too many times we've seen where the uh, key to the gun safe, the lockbox, is available to family members, uh, burglars, and others. And we've seen those situations result in tragedy. Even combination devices can be a problem because oftentimes um, the combination has been shared with all household members. The other intermediate storage practice that's of concern, it'd be a firearm that's unlocked. So it is, you know, in a dresser drawer, in a duffel bag, in the basement, uh, wherever, that it's unloaded so it doesn't have ammunition in there but uh, why that's an intermediate storage practice and a, and a practice of concern is that typically the ammunition is available somewhere else in the household 
and the safest storage practice. What most entities recommend is that firearms be stored in an approved safe storage device and that the ammunition be locked and stored separately. An approved safe storage device could be a lockbox, a gun safe, or a trigger lock. Tony says that though most gun owners support safe storage practices, there is some resistance. Most gun owners these days have guns for self-protection, and anything they see getting between them and their loaded gun, they see as a problem. The reality of it is, um, is that the chances of a criminal intruder uh, coming in versus all the other adverse things that can happen from a firearm being in a household. Right now, best evidence we have shows that the risks of unsafely stored firearms are greater than any risks of, uh, of a locked up firearm and, and needing to access it. I don't anticipate needing to use a gun in self-defense in my home. Like we have a security system, we have a big dog. Like those are the things that I feel are gonna be far more effective. This is Cassandra Crafasi. I'm an assistant professor in the Center for Gun Policy and Research in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Cassandra grew up in Washington State, 20 minutes outside of Seattle. Her family was a gun-owning household. Her dad was a Vietnam vet. From a very young age, I knew that we that he owned firearms, and you know that they were they were a tool for for hunting or for other things, um, not something sort of to be played around with otherwise. Cassandra went to Central Washington University for undergrad, where she did a lot of bird hunting. It was then that she started acquiring her own firearms. So I had a shotgun um, that I purchased at that point. And then as I got older, because of interest in, in sports shooting, acquired um, a rifle, uh, a lever action 22 rifle, and, and a couple of handguns. You've heard from Cassandra before. I reached out to her not just because she studies gun violence, but also because she's a gun owner. And there's another reason I wanted to hear her take. And how old are your kids? Uh, so I ha- they're my stepkids. I have two of them. One just turned 12, Tony. He's a boy. And uh, Caitlin turned 10 in October. Cassandra's a mom. She and her husband both own guns. For Cassandra and her husband, gun safety isn't just about what device they use to secure their guns, but about the lifestyle they've adopted. And how do you and your husband talk to your kids about um, having guns in the home, and what do you teach them about that? Yes, yeah, so they they know that we have guns in the home. Um, they've been aware of that for you know as, lo- as long as I have been around, and and probably before then also. Um, and we we talk about guns as being tools, certainly not toys, not something to be touched or accessed when parents aren't around. But at the same time, we know that children are curious and inquisitive, and we're not going to leave it up to them to, you know, be sure that they're not doing something they're not supposed to do, right? Like if kids never did what they weren't supposed to do, we'd let them make more decisions for themselves. Um, So on that note, we keep all of our guns locked in a safe. The kids know where the safes are um, because, you know, they're sort of part of the furniture in the house, um, but we, they don't know how to access them. um, And that's intentional because kids are curious and and we'll get into things. What struck me about their setup is that Cassandra and her husband, James, have separate safes for their personal firearms, 
each with different keys and different codes, and they don't know each other's codes. They don't have access to one another's guns. What's the reasoning behind that? Part of it is, you know, the, uh, the responsibility, in my opinion, of a gun owner is that you you control access to your firearms. You are the one that can access them, and no one else can have unauthorized access. Um, and so James and I keep our guns separate and our codes and keys separate so that, um, you know, he, he can't access mine, I can't access him, because that, to us, reflects sort of responsible storage and responsible gun ownership, because... I am responsible for whatever happens to my firearm. If I store it improperly and someone steals it or someone accesses it that's not supposed to have it and does something inappropriate with it, that's my responsibility. And not that I have any fear that my husband is going to use my guns inappropriately, but we just don't want to take that chance. We feel um, both very strongly that a key to responsible ownership is ensuring that you're the only one that can have access to them. I was curious about where they chose to store their guns and wanted to better understand how they made this decision. We each have um, actually two safes on our side of the bedroom, a, a very small safe that's bolted down um, that stores a handgun, and then a sort of standing safe for our, our long guns and, and other guns and ammunition. We chose the bedroom because we wanted to be sort of the, the furthest place from where people may be commonly spending time in our home. Like if we have people over or guests over, there really isn't a reason for people to be entering our bedroom. And so that's why we chose um, the bedroom. There's a tremendous need for more awareness about the importance of safe storage when it comes to keeping kids and teens safe. But the science to back it is there. Some years ago, I, I believe it was around 2004, when a very seminal paper came out in the journal JAMA, where our colleagues showed that safe firearm storage is associated with about 70% reduction in risk of suicide and accidental shootings among adolescents. This is Ali Rouhani Raybar. He's an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Washington. He studies violence prevention. That is, to my knowledge, is the best evidence so far we have in terms of the association between safe firearm storage and reductions in risk of self-harm and unintentional shootings among youth. Ali also points to another study showing that kids with risk factors for self-harm like mental health issues and substance abuse, have as much access to guns as other kids do. This is really concerning because it means firearms are not being safely stored, even when there's a troubled teen in the home. There are some hypotheses about that. One is that the parents may simply not know that their teen may have actually access to the firearm. They simply may not know. One of the questions that we asked was exactly that, whether the teen could actually grab a gun and, and shoot it. And 40% of teens said they can. I think some parents may be surprised to hear that statistics. Um, the other thing is that parents may not be aware of the strong association that we see over and over and over again between in-home firearm access and risk of suicide and unintentional shootings. Risk of suicide, indeed, for every single member of the household, not necessarily the owner themselves, but everybody in the household. 
In Seattle and across the country, there are initiatives to bring attention to this link between guns in the home and risk of suicide and unintentional shootings. Seattle's Lock It Up campaign, for example, partners with gun businesses and law enforcement agencies, who many gun owners consider credible and effective messengers, to provide information about safe storage practices to customers and to anyone who applies for a concealed carry license. Seattle Children's Hospital puts on firearm safe storage community events. Organizers provide trigger locks and lock boxes and have hands-on demonstrations on how to use them. Hundreds of people show up and they are enthusiastic about this. One of the studies we did um, showed that actually it was associated with some modest improvement in behavior that is increase in the percentage of individuals who stored their guns safely after, after the event. There are guns in about one-third of U.S. households, says Ali. And among gun-owning households, there is tremendous variability in terms of storage patterns. Uh, I think at the national level, um, you find about one-third of those gun-owning households, somewhere around that range, to store their guns completely safe, safely. Ali says that while about 60% of gun owners have had some sort of formal firearms training, the stakes are high for everyone involved, not just the gun owners themselves. The proportion of individuals who live in a gun-owning household but themselves are not owners of a gun who have received formal firearm training is very small. It's about 14% because of the strong association between presence of a gun in a home and risk of suicide for every member of the household, it's really important um, to focus on not only the owner themselves, but also other members of the family. As we talked about last episode, only a small fraction of gun owners who take formal firearms training receive education about suicide prevention. And on top of that, Most living in a home where there's a gun have gotten no training on firearms, on safety or suicide prevention at all. Something became clear to me during my interviews for this episode. It's a theme we've talked about before. The messenger matters. And then I met Jennifer Stuber. Jennifer made me realize that sometimes life just happens and you have no choice but to be that messenger. The reason I got into the suicide prevention field is in 2011, um, my husband uh, was experiencing depression and anxiety, and he ultimately ended his own life by suicide. People like Jennifer, who've lost loved ones to suicide or accidental shootings, can be just as powerful and effective messengers. Ironically, survivors like Jennifer are also at higher risk of suicide themselves. We know that, you know, in our culture, like, there's some contagion effects that can happen there. Um, That one of the highest, the most important risk factors for suicide is having suicide occur in your personal life because it just becomes this possibility that perhaps you never considered before, um, you know, if you were to go through a time of struggle or strife. Jennifer is an associate professor at the University of Washington School of Social Work. At the time her husband died, she was training mental health providers. She says up until then, not in her graduate training nor in her workplace, 
were people really talking about suicide? And I don't think that's uncommon. <laughs> I think that we actually haven't had suicide enough on the radar in the public consciousness. Jennifer's husband struggled with depression and anxiety. He'd struggled with it to some extent throughout his life, but they, his symptoms became far more acute during the downturn in the economy. Um, you know, he was a new partner, um, and he was concerned about whether or not he was going to be able to kind of, you know, meet the demands of, in terms of billable hours and was very, very stressed about that. Um, when he realized that his anxiety was, you know, causing him incredible difficulties with his ability to concentrate and sleep, he, he took a leave from his job and then he felt so much stigma, even though it's really mainly in his head. You know, he, I remember him saying to me, you know, who wants a lawyer with a broken brain? And, you know, he didn't have people around him normalizing that experience, that we all go through ups and downs, and it's okay to take some time off, you know, when when you're in that kind of place. Jennifer says her husband started to feel very disconnected from his job, which he once loved, and from his identity as a lawyer. She says the medications he was on weren't helping him. I think he, he felt hopeless and that he was a burden, which is, you know, obviously the most, it couldn't have been furthest from the truth, but suicidal people, they're in such deep pain, they're not thinking rationally. Um, I think he felt like he had no other way out than to end his life. The experience of Jennifer's husband is becoming more and more common. In the United States, suicide is on the rise. We have, uh, you know, I think a disconnection um, phenomenon happening in our culture. Um, one of the things that we know that is protective against suicide is people feeling connected to community, people feeling like they have people they can turn to, um, people feeling like they have meaning and purpose. The nature of family, friendships, and community have changed drastically over just a couple generations. These changes in lifestyle, says Jennifer, have undermined our ability to have meaningful connections with others. Well, I think we've got some really complex cultural factors that are at play that are going to be difficult to reverse. Jennifer believes that her husband died in part because the people in his life, she herself and his health care providers, weren't aware enough about suicide risk and prevention. I don't, you know, hold any anger about this at this point, but, you know, he did not get the proper care, and that's because people didn't have the proper training, and I don't, I view that as a systems issue. I also didn't have the proper training. I didn't know what to do as his spouse, and so, you know, I could have behaved better. The people providing treatment for him could have behaved better and, and been more supportive, um, and, because, but no one really understood what was going on. So that's just really become, become my life's work. After her husband's death, Jennifer reached out to gun safety groups, including what's historically been the preeminent organization in this space, the NRA. In its early years, the NRA was all about teaching marksmanship and firearm safety. Jennifer knew that history and wondered, what was the NRA doing today on suicide awareness? She couldn't find any information about it on their website, so... I called them, just decided to just give them a call, and... Um, what, I, what I basically learned is that the NRA, like the rest of the public, just didn't have an awareness that, you know, again, the majority of gun deaths in this country are suicides. 
that fact is still not widely known. I think it's becoming more widely known, but I, frankly, I blame public health and folks who have worked on the gun control side of this issue for not making that crystal clear to people in the public. And so that's a big issue. And then I think there's just a lot of myths like about suicide. They're like, oh, like, for example, the myth, if someone's going to kill themselves, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and then what specifically you do is also not very well known in the public consciousness. Jennifer says that for a long time, the suicide prevention researchers were focused on why people die by suicide, risk factors like mental illness or substance abuse. More recent research has shown that it's at least as important to understand how people die, the means, the tools they use. What we know, for example, is that roughly 70% um, of all suicides, the very commonly available, commonly owned, used means of firearms and medications are used. So it's really important that those who are prescribing, selling, um, you know, distributing those means um, are also disseminating an important safety message um, around suicide prevention. Since her husband's suicide, Jennifer has made it her life's work to prevent suicide. She trains healthcare providers not only on how to identify and help someone at risk, but also on how to counsel patients about safe storage, how to limit access to lethal means of suicide in times of crisis. In her work, Jennifer makes it a point to focus not just on firearms, but all common lethal means, including medications. She talks about gun safes and lockboxes and about locking up medications and safe drug disposal sites. Not just about firearms, it's about a safer home. This kind of framing has allowed her to forge broader alliances and find common ground with organizations as wide-ranging as the Second Amendment Foundation, the NRA, and the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, and clinicians working with everyone from veterans to kids. We have over 43 partners at the table, and so I think what we're doing is, is actually very important and very unique because what we've chosen to do is to say, hey, we've got a big tent, there's a lot of people at this table who don't agree on a lot of things related to guns, but what we are going to focus on here is what we do agree on with respect to suicide prevention and what we want to try to move forward collectively. In 2012, Washington State passed the Matt Adler Suicide Assessment Treatment and Management Act. Matt Adler was Jennifer Stuber's husband. It is the first law in the country that requires that all behavioral health providers um, in our state have some training in, in suicide prevention. It's a minimum of six hours every six years. After it passed, the law was amended to add a training requirement for all health care providers in the state, not just mental health providers. We're the only state in the country that has actually passed that law. In addition to training healthcare providers, Jennifer and her partners do a lot of outreach to firearm retailers, instructors, and owners. They have a hunter safety program, a concealed carry program. They set up tables at gun shows and provide free locking devices. They develop trainings with and for gun retailers, doctors, and pharmacists about safe storage of firearms and medications. And they have access to those gun retailers, doctors, and pharmacists because of the goodwill they've earned. 
really a public awareness campaign is what, what where we've focused our time and energy. And again, there's a big tent and a lot of different people at the table working on this. There is hope. There is help. Sometimes it's hard to find. But if you, if you stick with it, I mean, you know, most people who die by suicide, we know from attempt survivors that they're really happy that they're alive, <laughs> um, that they really are happy that, that they didn't die. Um, we just do have to do more as a society, though, to, to prevent suicide. If someone you know is in crisis or thinking of hurting themselves, do not leave them alone. Remove any firearms, alcohol, drugs, or sharp objects that could be used in a suicide attempt. Take them to an emergency room or seek help from a medical or mental health professional. Call the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. Or text the crisis text line at 741741. Another resource for LGBTQ youth is the Trevor Project's Lifeline at 866-488-7386. In Sickness and in Health is brought to you by Just Human Productions. Today's episode was produced by Virginia, Laura, and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.